Today, another example of when good faith goes bad. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. On the previous episode, what I invited was a consideration, a noticing, or an admission of when something's gone wrong with our faith. And I'll clarify again later, I don't mean objective faith, uh, the content of what we actually say we believe, but the subjective side of that, the way that we manifest our faith. Things go wrong with it sometimes, and I think last time, uh, I didn't necessarily close the loop on that episode, on that conversation. So I want to do it right now. And by closing the loop, I just mean going back to the original intent of why we were talking about, in that case, in the previous episode of Bad Faith, when therapy becomes the enemy of redemption. We were talking about the challenge that it is for us to acknowledge the power of the redemption that we associate with Christianity and the forgiveness, the imputation of righteousness, the the often ineffable but realized uh, imposition of transcendence to bring transformation that couldn't be realized without that supernatural intervention, that kind of stuff, that sometimes reconciling that rather than opposing it to the therapeutic work that we do or the accountability that we hold people to in this life, even if they've been forgiven in terms of eternity. Sometimes that opposition uh, creates a a situation where the faith that we say we hold actually looks like the opposite of what that faith tells us it is from the very beginning. And that's what we want to avoid. And so that last conversation was about therapy becoming the enemy of redemption. And the part of it that I, I sort of left unclosed is that if I had gone back to the beginning. I would have said, you know, this is where we make our mistake, where where we should be able to see that something's gone wrong with our faith. I'm not even necessarily defining exactly what's gone wrong with it, although we talked about it long enough that I think we could make sense of some of the specifics of what went wrong, what's gone wrong with our faith. But but in particular, what I'm really getting at is simply that we create this contradiction between what our faith is supposed to be and the way we've lived it out. So on that topic, the previous topic, on therapy becoming the enemy of redemption, if our practiced faith, our subjective faith that we're holding, says that a therapeutic model, dealing with people and trying to help them recover and heal, or dealing with people who've been forgiven and saying, but you still have to be held accountable for the decision you made or the action that you took, If our faith says that is all wrong, then we hem ourselves in so that we cannot use our best tools to help the very people our faith commands us to serve. 
So if someone is suffering and I have a therapeutic tool to help them, but I say, well, I can't use that. All I, you know, I have to, I have to just pray and you just have to be better. And I know that's an oversimplification by far. I don't know very many people who would say that. But the longer conversation, we talk about some of the more nuanced approaches to that. But that contradicts what our faith should be doing, which is telling us to take whatever it is that we have and use it for the benefit of those who are in need. And if if redemption, if the idea of forgiveness and uh, righteousness being given to us as a gift from God, if redemption, salvation, implies in some way to us that accountability for our actions, for our sins, for our violations of other people or whatever, that that accountability is wrong. And I gave the examples last week of, you know, forgiving the abuser in a church context where there's been some kind of sexual abuse in a church, which happens all the time, or saying a wife should endure the abuse of her husband, any of those examples. If our redemption says, oh, there's no accountability, you just need to go home to your husband, and, and if he beats you, just uh, know that you're representing Christ, which we should never say, by the way. But if, if our redemption says accountability is wrong and we say things like that, then we become advocates of the powerful against the vulnerable, and even those who have just survived their vulnerability, which is exactly the opposite of what our faith should have produced in us. So that's the point of saying it's bad faith. We would be doing, and this is is what our faith should have produced in us, to do what Jesus did to protect and to serve the vulnerable against those who use their power against them. And so if our faith is doing the opposite of that, then something's gone sour in our faith, and we need to address that. So that, that was on the issue of therapy and redemption being opposed to each other being evidence that something's wrong in our way of thinking about faith. This episode is instead just a second example, and these are not all incumbent. I'm just choosing two examples of where this can happen so that we would sort of learn to keep our eyes open for it. Uh, And it's not complicated. I'll give you the basic form here again. Uh, and, And, well, in fact, I'll give it to you right now. The basic form of this contradiction or this problem of bad faith that I'm talking about is that our faith says we ought to do whatever, X, right? Faith says do this, pray. But then my faithful practice leads me to do the opposite of X. So, oh, well, I have faith, so I don't need to pray anymore because God's not moved by my words and he knows all things and his sovereignty he'll accomplish anyway. So, you know, my faith says don't pray. Well, no matter how you think through it, no matter how you justify it theologically, and I'm choosing an innocent one because nobody says that that I know of, but, but if it were to say that, and I could come up with rational justifications that are more inside the lines than some of the theological arguments I have heard made, then you're wrong. You know, something's gone wrong with the faith, and it's time to go back to the beginning and say, well, where did I get off the path? You know, what led me outside the good side of this faith? So w- when we're saying that, that something's gone wrong with the faith, again, I'm not questioning the objective side of that faith. It's not that there's something wrong with the content of what we're supposed to believe, but more likely because there's something wrong with how we're applying it subjectively. And our confusion of those two things, our confusion of what's objective in our faith, what's in the content that was once delivered to the saints, using the words of Jude, our confusion of objective faith with subjective faith is part of the reason we react to hypocrisy by abandoning our faith altogether. 
instead of pursuing a purer faith. And that's a shame. And I mentioned this last time, so I won't rehash it thoroughly. But that is a shame because it's the objective part of that faith itself, which is most likely the thing teaching us that hypocrisy is wrong. So, you know, what I'm saying is don't abandon the faith that's telling you yours isn't good enough. The faith is the thing that's telling you your faith isn't good enough. So, you know, why would we abandon that? Anyway, you get the idea. So the basic form of it is, of this problem of arriving at bad faith, recognizing that something's gone wrong, is to observe when the faith initially says, don't do X, and our faithful practice says, oh, well, we do X, but, but it's okay, we justify it in some way. Something's gone wrong, you know, when we do that. Okay, so here's the example for today. Uh, it's when, and this is an example of when faith's practical purpose, again, contradicts its real end the thing something's actually about. And in this form, in the example that we're talking about today, I'm talking about in our faith, what complementarianism, and not everybody uses that word, but once you use it, it's the word to describe this. So I'm going to use it a lot today. But complementarianism, the understanding that there's a difference between the genders, that there is some intrinsic difference between masculinity, femininity, or between maleness and femaleness, or between men and women, or whatever way you want to say it, and those are all different, and I get it, and we can have long discussions about that. We'll have short discussions about it <laughs> later on in this episode, but the point is that complementarianism says there's a reason that those two things are different, that the genders are different, and uh, that they fit together in a way that complement each other, that complete each other, that we're not complete with one half or the other. We need both halves. So in our, in our faith, this is, and I'm just going to give you the, the short form up front. So I said there's a basic form, you know, X is the case in our faith, and then we end up practicing the opposite of X, and there's a problem. So last time I didn't close the loop. This time I'm going to close the loop at the beginning, and then our issue will be to fill it in. You know, what, what, why is he saying that? So here's, here's, here's what that problem looks like with our faith regarding complementarianism. In our faith, acknowledging the difference between the genders, that is, complementarianism, should teach us just how equal the distinct genders are. That's what it ought to teach us. And that's a fundamental lesson of complementarianism, a fundamental lesson of what, lesson of what Scripture teaches about the genders. But in practice complementarianism has become a means for treating one gender as if it has less value than the other. You get two guesses on which gender suffers in that picture, by the way. You only need two guesses, by the way. If And if that's the case, so again, what I said was complementarianism in the objective form of the faith that we say we hold teaches us how equal the genders are. But in practice, complementarianism, the difference between the two genders, has come to provide us a means for assigning less value to one of the genders than the others. And if that's the case, then something's gone wrong with how we practice our faith. We're in bad faith. And that's what I want to address. I don't want it to be there. I'm not addressing it because I don't want to be complementarian. I am complementarian, and I'm complementarian after having thought through this whole thing. And by, again, by complementarian, I mean I believe in the genders completing one another. I believe 
what is described in Genesis 2 that I'll read to you in just a moment, that the nature of humanity with one gender was inadequate, and that God's determination from the creation was that we needed to be male and female created he them, you know, to use the King James kind of language about it. So first is the completer idea, which is where the complementarianism comes from. It's not with an I, it's with an E, right, in the middle of the word. But then second, complementarianism acknowledges this difference between the two genders, which is built into completing one another. They, th- these things do go together inherently, but the difference is important, that there is some distinction between being a man and being a woman, between being male and being female, that goes beyond our preferences or our cultural in, uh, uh, instantiations, the way we practice it in our culture, which, which is hugely influential. We underestimate the significance of the cultural nature of the way we regard gender. So I don't mind that part of the conversation with other people. They're actually right about a lot of that. But a part of it isn't just cultural. There is a part of this that has to do with who we are beyond the biology. I don't think it's just biologically defined or anything like that. So we, we could, again, have much longer conversations about that. We'll touch on it as we're going through this episode. So, so let's just take this in a few simple steps. First, the lesson described through Scripture about complementarianism. I get it. If you don't believe Scripture or if you believe Scripture, but you don't take it as something that's prescriptive for our current way of holding the faith, then you're going to say, well, I don't care how Genesis 2 describes it. I mean, that's what the Hebrews thought about it back in the day. That's fine. I get that. I get that some people regard Scripture that way. That's not how I regard it. I read it and assume that the truth that it expresses is supposed to directly, prescriptively, shape the way I think about that truth. And so, and I know, I, I know that there are ways to haggle that out in the vocabulary of even what I just said that are more and less conservative and liberal and all that stuff, but just taking the story face value that we're given when God creates man and then creates the woman from the man at the end of Genesis 2, you know, in that story, what's the point of that narrative? There are a lot of different ways that you could describe the point in its historical context and all that other stuff, but, but one of the points is just built into the way the story is written, or a couple of the points, but I think it comes down to one key point. And it, and it goes like this. So first of all, God brings all the animals in front of Adam. You know the story. So this is the retelling of the creation of Adam and then Eve. And after he creates the man, he says, not good that man should be alone. We're all aware, you know, oh, well, he said it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, in the other part of the narrative, completely different part of the narrative. But here, it, it does stand out that he says this is not good. It, but he doesn't mean it's evil. There's no fall yet. There's no sin yet. But it is inadequate. It's imperfect. So it needs to be completed. So let's find a completer for this man. So we take all the animals. We know God's not going to find, not going to find a, a completer for the man among the animals. This is for our benefit as the readers. It's for Adam's benefit as the man, right? So he brings all these creatures in front of Adam so you have power over all these things. You name all these things, but is anything there adequate that's going to complete you? Well, of course not. So not that's just not going to do it. I mean, you get a dog. I hope you enjoy your dog, but it's not going to complete you. Uh, that's fine. So, I, so all that being said, we realize there's not a helper that is sufficient, a completer for Adam. So God puts him to sleep, first anesthetic, right? Only anesthetic for thousands of years anyway. 
God puts him to sleep, and he takes a part of him out, and he makes a woman from part of him. And the man says, oh, two parts. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The inherent nature of that statement is the same stuff that I am, equal. No way the value can be inferior because it's the same stuff, bone of bones, flesh of flesh. And But the other half of the sentence is, she'll be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. She, 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 so there's a difference. There is something different here. And therefore, he goes on to say, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, holds fast to his wife. They become one flesh. The man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed together. In their coming together in this, you know, first moment of having humanity complete, male and female, the difference between them is the indication that all of humanity is of equal worth. So in the first sense, you have to recognize that Adam and Eve have an identical nature. They're not animals. They're in contrast to the other species, and they're made of the same substance, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But in the other half of the, of the thing, you need to recognize that they are, just like they're identical in nature, they are essential to each other in order for them to be complete as uh, mankind, as humanity. She's made from his, his stuff. He was not good until she existed, and so on. So you put those together, and you realize, that, well, there's an identical nature. They're both essential to each other. They complement. They complete each other. But they are inherently different because she's a woman and not a man. She's taken out of the man, but she is Isha, not Ish. She's woman, not man. And in that difference lies the moral underpinning for the rest of humanity's existence, that we're to acknowledge every human being's equal standing in the world, regardless of their differences, regardless of ethnicity and language and culture and appearance, all things that emerge later that are not essential to the completion of humanity. They're just, you know, largely manufactured by us and our experience and time and all of that kind of stuff. All of those differences, we're aware, are not differences that create some inequality of standing or opportunity or anything like that. And so as it comes out in Leviticus 19, it's love your neighbor just like yourself and love the stranger as one who's born among you because you were strangers in the land of Egypt and so on. Those statements are statements that hinge psychologically on what we learn from the relationship that we have with the opposite gender. If we learned the lesson that Adam learned in the moment that he realized, well, this person is made of the same stuff that I'm made of. So obviously she's of equal worth. And the point here is that it's easy to acknowledge every human being's equal standing in the world, regardless of the differences that we have with them. That's easy to do when you've acknowledged the equal standing in the world of the one person who has a difference with you which is essential to your identity, gender. And so all the other differences fade into obscurity in comparison with that one. I mean, I'm not even saying this pejoratively or negatively. It's not a, it's not a negative thing to say 
Men and women are different, and they think about things differently, and they do things differently. Not all men think about things the way all men think about things, and not all women think about things the way all women think about things, but you put a man and a woman together, and they're going to think about things differently, and they're going to do things differently, and they're going to be different, and they're going to be attracted to each other because they're different, and all those differences, none of them justify either saying, well, you're just inferior because you're a woman, or you're inferior because you're a man. I know, you're tempted to say, well, you haven't met my man, or you haven't met my woman. But that is the point of this lesson up front, that we regard one another with this respect that looks through the difference of our gender and acknowledges the equality of our humanity. And because we're able to look through it on that difference that's just so stinking obvious, then we're supposed to be able to look through it on the things that have to do with the color of our skin or the language that we're speaking or whether we're celebrating July 4th or Cinco de Mayo. We should be able to look through it on all those other differences as well, right? So this is where the current gender discussions ought to find relevance among Christians. Not because we care, you know, whether, and and by, you know, when I say the gender discussions, I mean the LGBTQ movement, all of the things that are associated with with that, with that direction of thought and, and argument and public policy and all of that. Those discussions for us as believers ought to find their grounding, not because we care whether people shave their legs or not, or because we imagine well, the perfect woman is slight and weak instead of independent and strong. It shouldn't be there. The significance of the difference for us should be in the moral imperative it gives us to recognize the equality of all human beings because of that difference, which is why I am complementarian. You're hearing a lot of words that would imply to you if you're a if you think theologically or you think about these terms, you'll, oh, he's trying to advocate for egalitarianism. I'm doing the opposite. But I am saying we have allowed complementarianism in the form that is healthy, I believe, to become hijacked by this bad expression of what that faith looks like. So let's let's think about what that bad expression comes out to. But let's, do, let's take a couple of more steps before we jump directly into that. One short, simple step. And we'll do this actually two because I'll do both sides. Complementarianism does have an inherent weakness, an inherent challenge, let's put it that way. And it's a tendency to fall into, and I will explain this term, don't, don't jump ship on me. It has a tendency to fall into ontological disparity, right? Uh, that, that, you know, the, that here's the reason that women are not senior pastor of a church. It's because they're susceptible to deception. You know, because uh, the devil was better in the garden with Eve than he was with Adam. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that is completely mistaken. And uh, people who study theology and complementarianism know that that's not the grounding for any of the discussions about complementarianism that can be defended ultimately because then you end up with a two-tiered system of humanity, some that are more valuable than others, and the discounting, the disparity that comes out of that is really bad. And, and, that, and we lived in that for millennia, much less to say centuries. Uh, you know, it was only within the last hundred years that women gained the right to vote in the United States. And if you say, well, yeah, but that didn't have anything to do. No, it was because, you can go back and read the literature. 
it's because men regarded women as too irrational to cast a vote. And so only in the early 1900s did women finally get suffrage, the, the right to vote in the United States. That should tell you that we have, we fell into for a long time this inherent challenge of complementarianism, which is to maintain an awareness of the moral equality, the value equality, the ontological equality that goes with simply being human, not being one gender or the other. So that, that's always going to be a, a challenge in complementarianism. We are always going to have the, the prospect of slipping into believing that there's some ontological, some inbuilt nature of being that's different uh, for the souls of women than the souls of men, and that that inequality has to be protected somehow by the more powerful of the that that's that's a problem. Even if you try to make it generous and inclusive and all of that kind of stuff, it leads to all kinds of problems that are indefensible, indefensible biblically. This, but but the the flip side of that is that there's an inherent challenge to egalitarianism, because egalitarianism will always have a tendency to erase, or at least pretend to erase or attempt to erase, the prima facie distinctions between the genders. And, you know, the, and this is part of the reason that there's a hue and cry every time somebody moves toward egalitarianism, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's part of the reason that the response to the LGBTQ movement is so dramatic and so outspoken. Uh, I, I'm not, I, I don't pretend biologically that there, is, that there are no uh, difficulties in interpreting biological data at times with people who are born, for instance. I don't, I don't pretend that's the case because I know there, there are cases that are distinct. But I also know those cases are distinct and that the prima facie evidence, and this, this doesn't resolve any of the LGBTQ arguments. It's just for us to keep in mind. Those, those prima facie evidences that there is something different in our species between this half of the population and that half of the population even when we acknowledge, oh, well, sometimes there are exceptions to this in one way or another. Whatever those exceptions are, are exceptions because we recognize the broad categories are present. And the fact that culture imposes expectations on part of that population and different expectations on the other part, that is, that we have cultural expectations for people who are born and declared to be a girl and different cultural expectations for people who are born and declared to be a boy— those, those, that's true. There are cultural expectations that do shape how those lives are lived out, but they don't change the fact that there are two different categories of people that we started with. And that prima facie part is all I'm talking about. Egalitarianism all, will always have a tendency to try to elide that distinction, to try to, and, and, and I don't mean pretend in a vicious or malicious way, so don't take it negatively but to try to act as if that difference doesn't exist. And there's something just empty about that, vapid about that, that's not, a, not enough, not adequate. And so that's part of the reason that there's such a hue and cry every time there's a step toward egalitarianism, because it feels like we're going to jump off of the cliff you know, and, and end up making statements that are just you know, demonstrably false, sort of statements that the king is wearing clothes when he's not, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. 
So uh, the other side of this, and, and this is uh, this is the inherent. So that was the inherent challenge to egalitarianism. Here's what I want to do, though, is give an example of how this issue has gone bad in our practice of the faith. And I am describing, you know, sort of conservative, historically evangelical uh, Christians, you know, in that in that world. It's really hard to categorize one group of people in here because it's become so uh, diverse now, divergent, really, even among those who would identify themselves that way. So, uh, but, so I'm fine with recognizing that. But just historically, to recognize that this is an, an example of an issue. And, and then I'll give another example in a moment. But here's an example. And it is the one-sided nature of the purity culture. I'm not questioning the value of sexual purity. I'm not questioning the importance of recognizing the proper role of sexual relationships and stuff like that. I'm not questioning that. But the one-sided nature of our purity culture historically, and, and even in the attempts to catch up, you know, so we have all these purity things about women that we describe, and then it's like, oh, we need to say these things about men too, so we'll also have a pledge for you. Don't forget, we're including the men in this. That, and I know, I saw, I watched, I watched all this unfold. I know that's what's going on, that was going on. You know that's what was going on, if you're honest about it. The, the expressions of this were so one-sided to, uh, against understanding the equal worth of women and or the equal responsibility of men that it became evidence of a bad practice of the faith that said that men and women are equal participants in this role and relationship that we have with each other. So the, you know, and the expressions of that inequality, again, not, not an indictment on purity as a whole or what it actually is in scripture or the expectations of what the sexual relation should be like in marriage and so on, but it, it's not just the expressions that are suspect, but they, they're not, let me say that again, they're not just suspect. These things that we chose to express in terms of purity are not just questionable. They are outright evidence of inequalities. People were punished for being pregnant, even when you didn't know who the man was or what was involved uh, or how it came to pass. Uh, look, I, uh, the, the, I can, the stories of this are beyond belief. For those of you who are younger, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. But, uh, you know, I, I watched recently the, the movie about Aretha Franklin. Go watch the movie. I'll let you interpret what happens early on in the movie to understand how our purity culture almost entirely blamed women for anything that happened uh, that involved quote, unquote, sexual impurity. The second side of that was that, you know, the, the, the value that's been put on, and this is historically across cultures in humanity, uh, this uh, value that's been put on uh, virginity for females and, and testing for that and things like that historically, those, uh, those ideas diminish the equal worth of half of our population. Um. And, you know, the, the sides of this multiply in so many different directions. Like we, we could be, so I picked purity culture, that the way that we practiced it, again, not, not about purity itself, but just the way that we practice purity culture as a question. I'll give you another example. And again, these are just examples we're hitting on and, and moving on. And I, I don't know all the solutions to this. I just want to point out where we ought to be doing better, you know, and, and we ought to at least be willing to question 
the value of the way we've expressed our faith. So there's this well-intentioned rule that has intolerable implications. The well-intentioned rule is super simple. I mean, people refer to it as the Billy Graham rule, and there's grounding for it, I understand. Uh, You need to be prudent and cautious about this and that, you know, and make sure you don't fall into sin and so on. Okay, fine. But, and this is, that's the rule that many people believe in. Many people follow this rule about meeting with someone of the opposite sex. But really, I mean, we say it that way, but really, the rule is about men uh, and what they do in their meetings with women. And so, you know, the rule became, don't, don't be in an elevator alone with a woman. You know, as, and as a young man in ministry, I was taught these rules. I was taught it by people who were trying to help me not fall into error, not make a mistake. I don't begrudge that. I understand it. Errors happen. Mistakes happen. And there's a reason for us to be prudent about our relationships. All that's fine. All that's good. But this rule has an implication to it that I'm not sure we've recognized, which actually tells us, it gives us this inside voice that says one of two things. Either women are seducers, temptresses, and so the inherent nature of it is that if that woman steps into the elevator with you alone, there's no telling what she's going to say when she steps out. No telling what she's going to do while she's in there, and so you really need to be careful. So we either define the woman as this temptress. That's how we, that's how we have to start looking at all women. That they're, they are just temptresses out there. Or if you say, well, no, it's not the woman's fault, then we're defining the woman as a sexual object. Well, I mean, you know, you never know who you're going to immediately have this relationship with that you shouldn't have had, so you better not be alone in a room with a woman. That, that's a problem. Now, again, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind. There's no need for prudence. It doesn't matter. There's never a temptation. I'm not saying that either. But I am saying there's something unjust, something unequal, where we're supposed to treat people with equal respect when we're willing to have meetings with other men to discuss these business matters while we're in this isolated space between just me and him, and nobody else can hear our conversation. We can work out the deals of the world that turn the wheels of industry, but we're not willing to do that with a woman. There is something unequal about that. Uh, And if we say, oh, no, women are welcome in the workplace, but there is And there's no glass ceiling. Well, yeah, there is a glass ceiling. If you're willing to meet alone with men to talk about deals and you're not willing to meet alone with a woman to talk about deals, that that there's an inequality that's present. You can say, yeah, we'll solve the problem. No, that's not what I'm doing today. I'm just pointing out that in the expression that our faith has taken, we're actually demonstrating the opposite of what our faith told us we ought to have which is an equal regard for men and women, an equal regard for every member of society, for every human being. And so I just wanted to give those two examples because we live with them on a regular basis, the way we talk about purity, but especially with women. And I, and I mean that one more historically. I think we've gotten better about talking about that. I hope we have. Uh, but also the Billy Graham rule, not to make fun of it, but to say, for instance, like I say here at Criswell College, if you're going to have the Billy Graham rule, then have it for everybody. 
It doesn't matter what the gender of the other person is so that you can create an equal environment for the conversations you're going to have. If you're going to say, if I'm going to talk with a woman, somebody else has to be there, then you need to say, if I'm going to talk with a man, somebody else has to be there. Why wouldn't you do that? Unless you're regarding the woman the way I was talking about a moment ago. Okay, all all that said. Here's the thing. There is uh, further evidence that there is a problem in the way we're living this out. And the real evidence that what should have been the result of our faith, that we regard every human being as being of equal worth and having equal standing in society, what should have been the consequence of our faith is actually the opposite of where our faith has led us, to where we are devaluing half of it. The real evidence of that is in our everyday application of how we're living with our completer. And sometimes on one gender and the other, but I'm, I'm a man, so I'm gonna do it from my perspective. You know, what are we doing wrong as men? And we've historically applied complementarianism as if it meant, well, you know, my woman, she refills my tea glass, and that's the whole, that's the whole picture. I'll go way beyond that. We do, historically, men have held this position that women, and, and a lot of women have adopted the position too, and a lot of people have been perfectly happy with each other in this regard. That's, that's, that's your business. How you want to practice this is up to you. But our faith says we ought to regard it one way. Women, we, we've, we've held this position historically, and this is a fault of ours. Women really only have purpose in completing a man. Not just men and women complete one another as humanity, and therefore humanity is good, but instead of that, the idea that a woman can only find her completion in a man. It's present in our vocabulary, our literature, our culture was built around the premise that a woman had to find a man. You know, that was the whole satisfaction of life for a woman. And that's it. So a woman had to be married to be complete. Married women had to be the appendages of their otherwise complete husbands. Well, you know, he was going to change the world, but he couldn't change the sheets on the bed. And so he needed a wife. Uh, So women were about household chores and raising children, and men were about reshaping the world with their industry and genius. I'm not against industry or genius. I'm simply pointing out the—and I wish it were just a caricature. But but going back not very many decades, this is the picture we lived with, right? And you don't even have to go back just a few decades. You can go back millennia. Hestia is home and hearth. That's the woman. Uh, this is the, 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 the goddess that defines things. It's not, it's not uniquely American. It's not uniquely Western. I'm not saying that. I'm not criticizing one particular culture over another. In truth, though, our history, that way of seeing women as assigned to this one set of roles that could only be fulfilled in a given woman by her fulfillment of a given man, in truth, that history is you know, it warped the picture that creation painted for us, the one I described for you above. And the evidence of that goes outside of just scriptural revelation. I think it's, you know, true around the world. There is a reason that Athena is the goddess of justice and of just war in Greek mythology and is so independently powerful. Uh, And in scripture, it's true too. Uh, There is a shallowness. Abimelech isn't praised for his, (laughs) for the way he dies, and he's not made fun of because he dies in such an embarrassing way. Oh, what a weakling he died at the hand of a woman. Abimelech's shame 
is that the best he can think of is, oh, somebody else killed me, so it's not known that a woman killed me. He should be ashamed of that, and the woman is powerful enough that she did literally take his life with the stone that she threw. There is a strength in Deborah. There is a strength in jail, which is independent of their gender. It's not saying, oh, look, this is weird. Deborah was able to lead people. It doesn't say, well, that's strange. J.L. didn't throw up before she drove that nail through uh, Sisera's head. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this re-embodiment of Jacob. Jacob, the cunning, the vengeful, the powerful, the one who leads God's people to bring these, this vengeance. This is Jacob being re-embodied, just like he is so often, or Israel as a whole, so often in different leaders and prophets and so on in the Old Testament, and it happens to be Deborah and Jael in this case. The fact that it's so unique and it's told about a woman is to speak to their culture and to get past that prejudice that said, oh, nobody would be able to do that who's a woman. Well, Deborah did, and not because she's a woman, but because she was powerful. Those stories are in Scripture for a reason. What's happened is that our faith has become part of our excuse for ignoring what the faith itself teaches us about the way we should regard people of the opposite gender. So that, you know, this, this is the thing we've done wrong. So, and, and instead of this, we should do something else. Instead of assuming that our culture's definitions of women's roles and men's roles must be right. That's what our parents did. That's what we have to do. Instead of using our faith to defend that culture, which is shaped by our existence in a fallen world. Instead of doing that, instead of using our faith that the genders are different primarily as a means for excluding women from different roles, which is often how we use that idea of complementarianism. Well, what is it women can't do? That's the the first thing we say. Well, I'm a complementarian, so women can't do this and that. So instead of that, instead of just defending our cultural norms about gender, and instead of just using our faith to figure out how to exclude people from different roles, we ought to be using our faith to challenge those cultural norms, to submit to one another, to esteem one another greater than ourselves, like Paul says in Philippians, and to see what God would do with the gifts of both genders that he's given the church within the way he describes it in the New Testament. I'm still a complementarian. I'm not saying these things as an egalitarian. I believe there are distinct roles for men and women defined in Scripture, specifically in the church. But the weight and meaning of those differences should disappear behind what's important, behind what our faith compels us to do, respecting one another, and nowhere more than in the church. May we do so. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. <laughs> Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.